This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Good morning. Welcome again to City Church. I'm glad that you're here. If you have your uh, scriptures, you probably want to open to Mark chapter 4. We're in a section in Mark as we go through it as a family. We're in a section in Mark where Mark kind of piles up a bunch of parables. Um, usually in the book of Mark, Mark just, just continues to go forward at a really fast pace. He continues to move forward through stories about Jesus' life and interactions that Jesus has with a variety of people. And this is a very um, rare place in Mark. There's really only two places like this where Mark just slows down and says, as I'm writing this gospel, as I'm writing this story, as I'm recapturing the life of Jesus from these eyewitnesses, I just want to tell you, I want to pack together some teaching that he gave. Uh, In Matthew and Luke and John, there are these large, large sections of teaching where if you're looking in your Bible and Jesus's words are written in red, you'll just see red page after red page after red page with, with red ink. And Mark, this is very rare. And what we find today is that Mark has smushed together several different parables, but with one gargantuan giant theme being the kingdom of God. And he orders them and reorders them in such a way as to communicate to us about the kingdom of God. And so as we studied over the last several weeks, we've been looking at this from chapter one, uh, from verse one, excuse me, we went through verse 20. We took several weeks to get through that. And this is the only week I believe that will be in this uh, set of verses. So just to remind you of what the parables are, the parables are a way for Jesus to teach through a filtered uh, through a filtered means. In other words, Jesus teaches by using common everyday things that anyone can understand, but it requires engagement and reflection and study and prayer and dependence upon God to teach you in order to really unpack what's going on in the parable. And so this is Jesus' preferred way of teaching. If you look at uh, Matthew and Luke, you'll find some 60 parables recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, not only that, We find out in verse 33, it says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. In other words, Mark is letting us know by using the word parables and many such parables in plural. He's letting us know I'm only capturing a few of these for you for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose is to explain to you the kingdom of God. Uh, One of my favorite passages in all of the Bible is similar to this one, uses the word many, uses the exact same construct in the Greek language. It's, uh, It's in John chapter 21. At the very end, John writes this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. In other words, if you think Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are chock full of amazing stories of redemption coming in and through the life of Jesus, wait until we get to heaven. One of my hopes about the new heavens and the new earth is that there's some sort of place where Jesus might sit down and tell us, or maybe on some movie screen the size of a galaxy. I don't have any idea how it's going to work, but I would like to know some more of these stories. I'd like to ask Holy Ghost why he didn't put them in uh, the Bible. And we'd be like, that's a good one, Holy Ghost. Why isn't that one in the Bible? We don't have any idea. We just know that God had, had humans write down his word and capture his story so that you and I, 2,000 years later, can come into and experience the power of God in these stories. And so what we find out, we looked at this multiple times through chapter four. We have found out that Jesus teaches in parables and later explains to those who are close to him what is going on. It says it in verse 34. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Or the word is literally, he untied everything. His parables can cause you to get all knotted up. 
Literally, the crowds and the Pharisees and the scribes and even his family would get knotted up by the parables. And his disciples, too, would be in this unfortunate state if Jesus did not later, in privacy, untie all the knots and give them incredible depth of understanding that we hope to get to today. Listen, this is where you're sitting today. This is how Jesus unties parables today. He captures his word in the Bible. He sends his Holy Spirit to teach us. He has us sit in a community where we can talk about it and learn together. And then he gifts some people to be teachers who can explain these things. So if you're saying how horribly unfair that there are some in the crowds who are not having this private session with Jesus to understand things, that's just not the case today. You are right now sitting in the explanation, the untying of the parables. And so at this point, it's going to be up to us. Do we repent and believe or do we harden our hearts as if it's not true? And that's where we sit this morning. So with that being said, three times in chapter four, verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to those on the inside. Okay, verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man. And then verse 30, what can we compare the kingdom of God to? What parable shall we use for it? The the whole point of this section, the overarching theme is the kingdom of God. And so I wanna unpack that for us this morning in what could be a very confusing sermon, or it could also at the same time be incredibly enlightening. So first, I wanna walk through the kingdom of God macro. Second, I think this is in your outline, uh, in your worship folder, I wanna walk through the kingdom of God micro. And then last, I wanna talk about what is the gospel of the kingdom, okay? When I'm talking about macro, I'm talking big picture, I'm talking global, I'm talking getting out away from the situation, looking down upon all of it. And when I say micro, realizing that macro and micro can be used in lots of different fields and lots of different ways, what I'm talking about is not the global perspective, but the personal, relational, down-to-earth perspective of the kingdom of God. If you look at the way Mark has written this chapter, Mark is doing this. He goes from micro to macro. He goes from personal picture to big picture to personal picture to big picture again in the four parables that he tells. It's as if uh, I love to watch golf. It's, it is just like for many of you, it is not nearly as interesting to me with Tiger Woods out. But good news, he'll be back next month and uh, we'll all get to watch golf again and waste lots of our time, waste lots of our life. Wonderful parenting opportunities will be lost, don't worry. And, um, and I love to watch golf for lots of different reasons. But one time I was watching um, the Pro-Am at Pebble Beach, not last weekend, again, I was not watching um, but years ago, I was watching, and they were describing the camera on, a particu- on the blimp. They're describing this amazing camera that could, could zoom all the way out, and you could see miles and miles of the coast of California. And that same exact camera could focus all the way in and follow a ball as it flies 80 or 90, 100 miles an hour through the air and lands in the fairway. And they could even focus it all the way in and show you the print on the golf ball. That's a good story for what Mark chapter four, one through 34 is about. It is Mark going in and out, in and out, focusing in, coming back out. This, this sermon will in ways feel like that because we're gonna start very big picture, but then we're gonna boil down in. So with that being said, the kingdom of God at a macro level, the kingdom of God, this phrase comes up 14 times in the book of Mark. 14 times the, book, the, the kingdom of God comes up in the book of Mark, and there is no way that we can unpack all of it this morning, but I wanna give you some hooks, some shelves. I wanna give you some ways to understand the kingdom of God. He will say stuff like the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's here. 
He will talk about it coming in the future in power. He'll talk about the kingdom of God not being here at all. Mark will also say to people, you're about to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, the way you and I think, we think I'm about to enter the kingdom of God. There must be some sort of line here where I'm going to step from one municipality to the next. I'm going to enter into the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm the king of this kingdom. And you're about to understand who I am and what I came to do. And so you're going to literally spatially but relationally enter into the kingdom of God. So, so Mark will talk about the kingdom as being here right now. And at the same time, Mark will talk about this phrase, kingdom of God, as being not here at all. And so what we understand, the way we understand this phrase, this overarching theme for the entire Bible, is that the kingdom of God is here and it's not here. It is now and it is not yet. The Bible will talk about three stages, three chapters, three phases for the kingdom of God. It will talk about the prophecies and the promise for the kingdom of God to come in the Old Testament. The prototypes of the temple and the Israelite and the sacrifices and the land. All of that is pointing forward as a prototype and a prophecy and a promise of Jesus to come. Now, the kingdom is inaugurated. I'm gonna use some language from Richard Pratt. Some of you have studied under him. Some of you have read sermons by him or, or listened to him online. The kingdom, phase one, is inaugurated. It is launched. It is planted in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus with focus on the cross, is the initial inauguration of the kingdom of God. That's stage one. And then the Bible will talk about the kingdom not just being inaugurated, but continuing and growing and maturing and multiplying and taking more space and kicking out more evil and reclaiming more hearts and decreasing injustice and increasing mercy and increasing forgiveness. So the Bible will not only talk about it being inaugurated in Jesus, but now by his church, by you and me, the kingdom will spread and one day, the kingdom will be consummated. It will be brought to fruition. It will be concluded. It will win. It's inaugurated in Jesus. It continues with us, and it will be consummated on that day that Jesus comes back, and he wipes out evil for good, and he establishes his kingdom forever. You and I will not be able to sin. There will be no injustice. There will be no tears. There will be no sadness. There will be nothing wrong. It will only be all good all the time in the beautiful presence of Jesus. And right now, the church, on a macro level, on a high global level, is trying to advance that rule and reign of Jesus. We're trying to advance mercy. We're trying to advance forgiveness. We're trying to advance truth. We're trying to advance what is right and true and good. If you look in our text, if you look just in verses 21 to 34, you can see all three of these stages interwoven through these parables. Look with me. You can see stage one as the lamp in verses 21 and 22. And he said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket? Literally in the Greek language, it says, does the lamp come in order to be put under a basket? It's talking singular. It has a definite, uh, it has a um, a definite article in front of it. And this is, Jesus is talking about himself here. He's saying, listen, I'm not going to come and forever be under a lamp or under a basket or under a bed. Right now, things are hidden. Right now, they're secret. But there will be a day where I will be revealed and magnified and glorified and known. 
For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. Jesus is saying the secret that we have here um, that's talked about over and over in the Gospel of Mark, it's the secret of the kingdom of God, telling the unclean spirits, don't tell anybody what's going on. He's telling, uh, and Paul will talk about this all throughout his books in the New Testament. This secret is like the secret for a birthday party. The whole point of having a secret for a birthday party is that one day the secret will be revealed and everyone will get to enjoy it. This is not a secret that remains hidden forever. Jesus is saying, we're just at stage one and two of my kingdom. There will be a third stage where everyone will know and see me. That's what's going on in verses 21 and 22. Not only that, uh, with the grain growing in verses 27 and 28, this is speaking about the kingdom growing. And we'll talk more about that later. The sickle and the harvest that we see in verse 29, these are biblical images for when Jesus comes back in judgment. I realize this is thick. Stay with me. I'm trying to establish a paradigm for us to focus down into. So the sickle and the harvest in verse 29 are speaking to stage three. That is the stage when Jesus comes back. And in Matthew 13, there's this parable that he's going to come. And right now in his world, there are wheat, there's wheat growing and there are weeds growing. And he says, let them both grow. Let them both happen. At the end, I will send someone into harvest. And a big giant sickle, which is, uh, which is a big knife with a, with a hook on the end. And the sickle will slice through and we'll take the weeds and we'll put them in eternal unquenchable fire. But we will take the wheat and we'll put it and put it, take it and put it in the master's barn or we'll put it in the master's presence. Okay, so then getting to verses 30 and 32, and I want to camp here for a little while. This is talking about the mustard seed or the mustard plant, and this speaks to stages one through three. If you think about the inauguration of the kingdom, the continuation of the kingdom, and the consummation of the kingdom, in this text, we would say it this way that the kingdom is sown. In the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that the kingdom is growing. I'm using biblical words at this point in your text. The kingdom is growing like a mustard plant, and one day it will become. Do you see that it becomes something in verse 32? Now, let's start at the very beginning and talk about at the macro level the kingdom, the rule and reign of Jesus, him being in charge of everything in actuality. Right now, he is in charge of everything spiritually. One day, he will be in charge of everything in actuality physically. It's it's sown as the smallest seed. Jesus, now listen, verse 32 says, it's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Now listen, there are smaller seeds. If you go and you want to be skeptical and cynical and look for smaller seeds, um, I can tell you where to go. There are some tulip seeds that are smaller. There are some turnip seeds that are smaller. Jesus is using a proverb here very well known to his audience. That to them, the mustard seed is indeed the smallest seed. It's not the smallest seed in the whole world, but to them, it's the smallest. And not only that, it's an incredible seed because this seed does not just produce one little flower or one little garden plant. It produces an entire shrub that is so large that botanists in the first century would argue over whether or not it's a tree or a shrub. And Jesus is saying, listen, the kingdom of God starts in really small, what seem like insignificant and really weak and strange ways. It starts with me dying. But if you'll just hold on, what starts in weakness and almost invisibility is going to grow and mature and get to the point where all the birds of the earth can come and flock and find rest and find food and find shade in its tree. I don't have time to walk through it. I was going to. But in the Old Testament, this idea for birds coming and resting in a shade tree is a promise of God's divine blessing to all the nations. 
six passages I could show you where the birds come and rest in a tree and in all of them, it's talking about all tribes and tongues and nationalities, not just Jews, but everyone coming into the kingdom and finding community there and finding rest there and finding food there and finding shade there. Jesus is using a picture here on a very dry desert land where, where you'd see birds flying constantly and incessantly and squawking and always trying to find rest, always trying to find shade, just flying sometimes for days at a time. He's saying, listen, all humanity will find its rest in me. I'm going to fall to the ground and die. And in my death, I'm going to produce this one plant that's going to house all of the nations of the world that are my children. And so you say, okay, Ted, one last illustration about the kingdom of God. And then we've got to move on to something more applicable to me. I feel that way too. The kingdom of God is like a Polaroid picture. The picture has already been taken. The end is already established. We are just right now shaking it, not like the dance song. <laughs> We're actually shaking the Polaroid picture and waiting and watching it develop. Those are the three stages of the kingdom of God. Now this week, this week we talked in our office about teams. We're trying to do team building. We're thinking through how do we be more effective together with our staff. And I was telling them something I learned a couple of years ago. I don't even remember, I don't know that I know who, although I could probably say someone and give them honor for it. I didn't come up with this. Those of you who are businessmen will probably know exactly who said this. But they said something like, um, there are three types of people. For some people, dreaming is doing. For some people, planning is doing. And for some people, doing is doing. And the point was, if you're going to create a team, try and get as many uh, variables as you can on that team and make room for as many people as possible. And you're gonna have to watch out for conflict and you're gonna have to do conflict resolution because I'm telling you right now, the doers hate the dreamers because the dreamers make more money than the doers and they don't do anything. <laughs> and I'm telling you right now, the dreamers look down on and use and undervalue the doers. And the planners are somewhere schizophrenically in the middle, okay? <laughs> So if you are a dreamer, if you're a dreamer, this concept of the macro global kingdom of God advancing and winning and killing evil and spreading good, this is great. We can talk about this all day long. But if your personality is more of a doer, let's get down to brass tacks. Right now you're like, okay, please give me something I can chew on. I will tell you this biblically, it makes more sense for us all to go down to brass tacks and chew on something specific. In our very text, it warns us that we do not know how the kingdom of God spreads, that it does it by itself. And this is how the kingdom of God spreads. It spreads by a bunch of people like you and me tilling up the soil of our hearts and becoming good soil in verses one through 20, bearing fruit. That Jesus is the king of his kingdom. He is the head of his church. He is in charge. And by his spirit, he sends each and every one of us into our callings, into our relationships, into our families, into our little world. And he just says, be a faithful beacon of light for me right there where you are. Be salt and light right where I put you, that I'm in charge of putting people all around this world. I'm in charge of advancing the kingdom in all these regions. I'm in charge of this. And I might ask you to go to another place and help me advance it there, but I've got this thing under control. 
This mustard plant is growing and it's growing by the power of the gospel. It's being driven by my spirit. And I just want you to rest and be faithful in what I called you to. In Lakeland, about seven and a half years ago, we were trying to find a house when we were moving there. And uh, Trish and I were driving over to the Lake Morton area, if you know anything about Lakeland. And um, we got into a little bit of a fight because anytime we're around her family in Lakeland at this point, seven and a half years ago, I was doing everything I could to not be around her family in Lakeland. So I would drive around. I felt like it was my responsibility not to trust the realtors, not to trust the, uh, the websites online. I felt like it was my responsibility to drive up and down every road and maybe even find a house where they don't have a for sale sign. But if it's perfect, I might just drop right in and get it, okay? And just convince the people to sell it to me for half of what it's worth for the kingdom of God. So... Um, um, we're getting in this argument, and, and I'm driving north on Florida Avenue, and I, and I turn left because we're getting into a fight. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take you back home. I'm taking you back to your parents, and I will go do this faithfully for our family because God is calling us here, and we need a place to stay. And, uh, and, and I turn left on Maxwell Street, and right there, four houses in, we find our dream house. I still took her home. I went back and looked at the house. She did not see it as the dream house when I drove by, nor did she see it as the dream house for about a year and a half. <laughs> because there was a reason. At this point, houses were selling for about 100 bucks a square foot in Lakeland. We bought it for about 25 bucks a square foot, and there's a reason why we bought it for that. It was uninhabitable. Every last drop of this historic masterpiece needed to be restored and renewed and recreated and reclaimed. And back then, the church there um, uh, said that I could spend some time at my beginning months there doing the work myself. If you went to seminary with me, you know, in my third year, last semester, I was in school maybe three or four times um, because I was over in Lakeland from February on trying to get this house redone because we knew we were moving. I knew I was going to graduate, blah, blah, blah. So the earliest stages of renovation, the earliest stages of reclamation, the earliest stages of redemption are moving in and deconstructing everything in there that's got to go. So I did an all call to Trisha's family, which I now respect, love, and appreciate because she has six able-bodied brothers. <laughs> so I love them tenderly and dearly, and I emailed them, said, please meet me there. And I put at the bottom, this is a man-only exercise. We're going to do some demolition. My brother-in-law, Todd, Todd Riggs, pulls up with his four-year-old son, Jesse, in tow. And I'm a little frustrated because this is a man's job. I'm high control anyway. If you think I'm high control now, imagine me seven years ago before the gospel began to kind of work on me. I mean, I was super high control back then. And, um, and I got over and I was like, all right, this is family. Jesus, I still think you're in control. I don't know how you can possibly be control at this point, but you're in control and he's here. And I had this brilliant idea of giving him a donut, giving him a hammer without a claw on the end of it. And I took him upstairs and I had a roll of tape in my hand, I said, Jesse, all of us men are going to be downstairs knocking the lap boards and the plaster and the drywall off the walls. We're going to get it down to the studs, ceiling and walls. But I want you this Saturday to work upstairs. And what I want you to do is I want you to take this hammer and I'm going to put a square on this wall with this tape. And I want you to hit this square as much as you need to until you can see through to the other side. And for about an hour and 15 minutes, all we heard upstairs was that hammer hammering away on that wall. 
And that's what Mark is saying to us in this passage, that Jesus is renovating his entire cosmos. And what he calls you and I to is to whatever our square is, to go and hit it as faithfully and as hard and as promptly as we possibly can as he builds his kingdom. Do you see that? Do you see how he's weaving these together? Verses one through 20, we looked at this for two weeks. We can't look at it again today. One through 20 is how you and I bear fruit in his kingdom. It's how you and I advance his kingdom as individuals. And then he picks back up in verse 21, and he said, he said to them, is a lamp brought in, put under a basket or under a bed, not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you see this? Do you want to know how you bear fruit in the kingdom? Do you want to know how you are used by God to advance his rule and reign on earth? Here it is again. It is so redundant in this passage. It is repeated to the point of redundancy. 10 times in verses one through 34, it says, listen, hear, hear, pay careful attention and listen. We talked about this last week. What are we listening to? We're listening to the word. Remember this, the sower sows the seed, except it doesn't say seed, it says, verse 14, the sower sows the word, and the word is the gospel, and the gospel is the grace of God, and the grace of God is Jesus here to live and die for his people, and then to live in them and bear fruit through them by his grace and his power and their dependence and their humility and their desperate but desirous need of him. Do you see this? I mean, keep going. He says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. This is the answer to the question. How do we bear fruit? We bear fruit in hearing huge amounts of the gospel humbly. We bear fruit in the kingdom of God by hearing huge amounts of the gospel humbly. Jesus says, first off, verse 24, Pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to what you hear. He's going to talk about quality of what you hear and quantity of what you hear. Pay attention to what you hear, and then the measure you use in hearing it, I will give it back to you and then some. Jesus is saying, pay attention to what you hear. You have got to learn to feed on the gospel. You are what you eat. Do you see how in these parables, Jesus is taking what is physical and what is spiritual and he's weaving them together in such a way and he's speaking of the physical botanical world in such a way to give us insight into the real world of our hearts, the real eternal world of the spiritual world that is within us. And he's saying, what you are is what you eat. I was at the zoo this weekend. We took the kids to go. Did you know that we have a zoo in central Florida? in Sanford. It's actually not bad at all. I, was, I, was, um, I have a saying around here, we're going to try and set the bar low enough to jump over it. Um, and uh, because I'd set the bar so low in my mind for the Central Florida Zoo, they, it clearly um, surpassed my expectations. It was actually quite nice. And I can't remember what the section's called where the snakes are. I can't remember that section. Um, I, I want to say herpetorium, but I'm pretty sure that's not true. It's like herbatorium or hepatorium. But at any rate, anyone know? Huh? HEPA? Herp? It is. Herpetorium. I was right. That sounded bad to me. That sounded bad to me, so I didn't want to say it. But anyway, there's all these snakes in there. And it was an impressive section of, um, of the zoo. And I personally am scared to death of snakes, but I love seeing them in a herpetorium because they're behind that glass. And, um, 
And there was a man there, um, a docent, a volunteer, a teacher, who was teaching a group in front of us about the snakes. And they, someone was really concerned about the snakes being in this not-so-natural environment and in this habitat, and they were really concerned about them. And uh, they said, you know, what's, what's the most dangerous thing for this snake? And um, he said, you know, you could guess a, a hundred times, and I guarantee you, you won't guess what the most dangerous thing is for this snake. The most dangerous thing for this snake is to eat a mouse that wasn't raised on good nutrition. That like five to 10 years ago, there's this multi-million dollar industry about raising mice so that people who own snakes can feed them the mice. And about five years ago, there was no regulation. It was just all on good faith and, and whatever. Um, mice raisers, mouse raisers, developers, parents, <laughs> began to feed and cut corners on how good the food was they were, selling, they were gonna feed these mice because they're gonna die anyway, right? So what's the big deal? And so snakes, pet snakes and snakes in zoo began to die off because they were eating something that was not good for them because you are what you eat. I mean, if we eat garlic, do we not automatically taste and smell like garlic to people around us? Jesus is saying, pay attention to what you hear because what you hear is going to come out of you and we are spreading the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus. And so what I need to come out of your pores and out of your bones and out of your heart and out of your spirit is the gospel. Pay attention to what you hear. And not only that, he keeps going, not just quality, he's saying quantity. With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you and still more will be added to you. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, every moment you give me reading the Bible, investing the gospel into your heart, I will bless it and I will add to it. Do you remember last, last week and the weeks before we talked about God is the one who gives the secret of the kingdom to those on the inside and the secret of the kingdom is Jesus himself? And right here he says, verse 23, to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, in other words, those who hear past tense and don't put it deep into their souls, even what they have will be taken away. If you are listening right now to what I am saying, it is a desperate matter how you deal with this biblical truth and this gospel. Because if you do not pay attention to it and you put your hand up to it and say, I think I will wait, Jesus says there will come a point where even what you had will not be yours anymore. But the glorious and beautiful promise on the other side of that is if you take in his word and his gospel, if you take him in and you chew on it and you feed on it and you take it down to the core of who you are and give it as much time as you possibly can, he says, I will bless that. And in you will be freedom and joy and worship and patience and laughter and goodness. And out of you will come my kingdom growing and, and there will be no more illiteracy and there will be no more death and there will be no more murder and there will be no more sexual harassment and there will be no more ignorance. And I'm going to grow my kingdom through my people soaking in my gospel so deeply that they can go and then give it away in a variety of different measures. I've got some advice for you. Over the last uh, couple of weeks, I've spent considerable time uh, talking about some of my mentors. I've got two in particular. And so what I thought I would do, what I thought I would do is I would give you all a, a way to establish a job description for finding a mentor, realizing that so many of you are at the age where you still need to be discipled and trained, including me. And so here's a job description of what you're looking for uh, in a mentor. You're looking for tons and tons of fruit. 
When you look at their life, are they at peace internally and is there goodness all around them where people come into contact with them? Secondly, is their consumption of the word increasing or decreasing? Is their consumption of the word increasing or decreasing? Thirdly, is their humility skyrocketing? Because the more and more we read about the Bible, the more and more we need Jesus. And the more and more we read the Bible, the more and more we hear about Jesus. And so at the same time, our confidence in Jesus goes up and our lack of confidence in ourself goes down. Is their rest going up? So here are some questions if you're looking for a mentor. Ask them, how did all this fruit happen in your life? If they say, well, I've got eight steps for you, why don't you write them down? Run. If they say, I have no idea, get as close to them as you possibly can. Next question, will you mentor me? If they say, sure, I've got a list of people I'm mentoring, run. If they say, I don't think I can and I'm not sure I'm qualified and yet the fruit in their life is so profound, they're obviously qualified, get as close to them. I mean, move in, move your family into the upstairs apartment of their house and be with them. Next question, do you read the Bible more today than last year? If they say, no, I read it and now I'm writing books about it, run. But if they say, I have an insatiable appetite for the scriptures that I at the same time will read it for hours and I will experience unbelievable delight and pleasure and rest. And at the same time, I have deep longings inside of me for more of it. And I'm so sad that I've got to go do whatever is next because I wanna just stay here and read. Get with that person quick. Because let me tell you something, you cannot read the Bible and be both deeply satisfied and longing for more unless you're reading the gospel in the Bible. If it's about me performing, me achieving, me making God happy with me, there will be a limit to how long I can stay there and truly be satisfied. But if it's about God saving me, if it's about God redeeming me, if it's about his kingdom being established in my heart and spreading inside of me more and more, then I just can't wait to get back into it and enjoy it. These are some words you want to listen to. Ask open-ended questions and see if they can hang themselves. Here are some words you want to listen for in your mentor. Repentance, humility, dependence, prayer, a growing consumption of the scripture, seeing the, bio, seeing the gospel in every page of the Bible. This is who we're looking for in mentors. Last, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. You have to see this passage, and I, I regret that I've been so long-winded and I've wasted a lot of our time, and I apologize for that. But you have to be able to see in these parables, the king of the kingdom. The first one, the light of the world. Verses 21 and 22. The Old Testament says the Messiah will be a lamp. The Old Testament says that God is a lamp. The Old Testament says the word of God will be a lamp. And here comes the lamp. And this lamp will one day become the sun, Jesus, the sun, S-U-N, who will replace the sun, S-O-N. And there will be no need for any light except for what comes from him. And do you know what happens to him on that horrible day outside the city of Jerusalem on that trash heap. He has his light snuffed out. And there is darkness in the land from noon to three so that you and I who deserve to be snuffed out can be brought in to experience his glorious light. Do you see this one 
This one who, who says, one day I will run a sickle through my creation and I will send the weeds into eternal fire and I will keep the wheat into my barn. This is the one who has already died when the sword, when the sickle, same word, goes through his side. And out comes water and blood because he has died for you and I who deserve to be there for our insurrection. You've got to see in this one seed, this one mustard seed that's thrown into the field, it says. It literally says thrown into the field in a haphazard way. This one seed that falls to the ground and dies is Jesus. He's the one that falls and dies. And then he is gracious and kind and extravagant to bear fruit in you and me out of his death. Last but not least, this one who is the tree, this one who is the tree that will reconnect heaven and earth, this one who is the tree to establish our relationships with God again, this one dies on a tree so that you and I can find rest in the shade. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I have been long-winded and um, I have not exhibited self-control. And at the same time, I believe that you can use this in the hearts of your people. And I believe that you can, um, that you can bring good out of all kinds of things. This is your word. This is your gospel. This is your seed. Please, oh please, plant it deep into our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.